Sometimes you can take a bite of something, and that bite can take you half a world away, or straight into the past, or even bring you right back home. When I so much as smell dolmadas, stuffed cabbage, I am immediately in my grandmother's kitchen in Greece, and in a place and with a person I can no longer go see. Food is cultural heritage. When I eat noodles, I feel like that's love. That's the love from my parents. Because, uh, um, you know, my dad is a noodleholic. So, <laughs> yeah, who eats noodles for lunch almost every day throughout the year. He, yeah. Yeah, he believes that all the other foods, including rice, bread, and even burger, are snacks compared to noodles. Um, so that's something that has been passed down to us. That's one of our listeners, Jiwei Gua. She's from the Shanxi province of China, but living in Scotland. Shanxi is known for its noodles, so noodles bring her home. Sometimes we turn to food to give us a lens into other people's cultural heritage, to learn about their home. One of our guests this week became the first Western student at a culinary school in Chengdu, China. And she's been spreading the word about Chinese cuisine in the West ever since. I was in a class full of 50 mainly Sichuanese young men mm. and two other women. And all the classes were taught in Sichuan dialect. And all our um, textbooks were in Chinese. <laughs> this is FT Weekend, the podcast. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. This weekend, we explore the food that gives places their identities. We're going to Shanxi, the noodle capital of China, with Jiwei and my colleague, the food writer Fisha Dunlop. But before we go, these conversations about noodles in Shanxi made me reflect on the culture of my city. Because a city's culture can be defined by its food, too. Particularly, its restaurants. I thought, what is New York in a restaurant? And honestly, there is nothing more New York than the steakhouse. So I went to Spark Steakhouse, one of the most old-school institutions in New York City, to talk about it over lunch. I went with one of the most influential restaurateurs in America, and frankly, a bit of an institution himself. His name is Danny Meyer, and he's the founder of the New York Stock Exchange-listed Shake Shack burger chain, worth some $3 billion. The history of the steakhouse in New York goes back to the mid-1800s. Men would go to old establishments, eat beefsteak with their hands, and wash it down with beer. Things changed in the 1920s. Once women were allowed in, they started using silverware and serving side dishes. It's interesting. These restaurants have completely transformed, but they're somehow still with us. So what does it take for something to become part of the fabric of a city? What makes something an institution? The late restaurateur Joe Baum had a great answer to that, and he said, an institution, whether it's a restaurant or any business, is one that outlives its original lease. And what that means is that no one's going there because it's in or because it's out, because it's hot or it's cold. They're going there because it's good, and it's become a part of their lives. That's Meyer, sitting next to me at Spark Steakhouse. Today, Meyer owns more than a dozen fine dining restaurants like Gramercy Tavern and more than 250 Shake Shacks around the world. A few weeks ago, I read this little essay that he wrote for Resi, the restaurant booking platform. They asked top chefs and restaurateurs to partner with one restaurant that they consider a classic in their city. It's for events that are happening really right now. And Meyer chose Sparks. It's an old steak joint, which really hasn't changed that much since it opened in 1966. 
I thought that was interesting. Because Meyer is actually one of the people known for driving change in New York over the last 40 years. His restaurant empire started with just one place, the Union Square Cafe, which he opened in 1985. That restaurant did so well that it played a big role in making the Union Square neighborhood first livable and eventually trendy. The first Shake Shack in Madison Square Park nearby did something similar. What, what would you like for lunch? Um, really, I would love to have a version of the Sparks experience and of your favorite things here. So what would you recommend? Well, that, I mean, <laughs> I it's everything. very simple. You're going to have to have, have to get some shrimp and some crab. One order of shrimp and crab, I got that. And um, let's do a sirloin steak, uh, medium rare, okay? You sure? Meyer and I are sitting at a table in the corner of the Sparks dining room near Grand Central Station. Hey, thank you very Cheers. much. Cheers, salute. Cheers. Welcome. He's wearing a button-down shirt and a jacket with his company's name on it, Union Square Hospitality Group. I don't think I've been here for well over two years because of COVID, so this is nice for me to get to come back here. Thank you. Sparks is one of those places that doesn't feel super fancy, but does feel like an event. Like, you have to remember which fork to use with which course. All right, we're going to... Thank you so much. Like you're walking into a place where history is suspended in the air. Old red carpets, low ceilings, old landscape paintings in gold frames, white linen tablecloths. The waiters are mostly all men, and they're all wearing black ties. Can I? Sparks has been around since the mid-1960s when it was known as the Seta Brothers Steakhouse. And besides the name, the only other thing that's changed here is the wine list. It has to, because wines run out. I told Meyer I'd been to Sparks once with my uncle. I was 20, and it all felt so old-school New York. That's his early memory of it, too, a place his dad would take him on special occasions when he came into town. But his own relationship with the place began when he met the owner, Pat Seta, just after signing his first lease on the Union Square Cafe. I had pounded the pavements all during the, the winter of late 84 and early 85. It was the coldest winter ever. And I'm just walking all over the city. My toes are numb, feet, hands are numb, trying to find out where I might be able to open this restaurant that was my dream. When Meyer finally found his restaurant, the guy he made the deal with brought him to Sparks to celebrate. And he had become very good friends with Pat Seta. Pat sits down with us for the entire meal and um, he asked me what I was doing and I tried to explain it. That was the first time he called me Lava. <laughs> what is it, Lava? What kind of restaurant are you opening anyway? And I said it's going to be eclectic bistro. He's, he used some pretty colorful language when he challenged that. Like, you know, he put the F in WTF. They became friends in those early years. Seda started popping into Union Square Cafe, and he always seemed to show up at a time of crisis. Either that or I was trying to solve some big problem every day, and it just didn't matter when he showed up. But he'd say, let's talk, lover. What's going on? I knew I needed to see you. He, can you believe that? He came all the way down to Union Square from 46th Street, and it was like the most... Um, I don't know, kind of unexpected therapist you can imagine. Mm. You know, if, if you ever use the word therapist to him, he, he'd give you one of his WTFs, lover. Right. But that's what he was doing. Um, 
Seta was Meyer's mentor until the day he died in 2001. He was, he had this amazing... Here's uh, what he taught him. One, your job as the owner is to know where the salt shaker goes. If you say it goes in the middle of the table, figure out where that middle is. The minute you stop doing that, that center is going to get further and further away and it's going to get harder and harder. And he said, that's the standards of your restaurant and it will never be better than your salt shaker. Two, do a few things consistently well and do them well every time. He was buying the world's best pepper that never made black pepper dust. And three, if you're in charge, be in charge. He had this great expression for me when he saw me being a little too gentle with someone on my team. Why don't you just hand them the keys of the joint, lover? <laughs> and I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, you're acting as if it's their restaurant. Just give them the keys. It'll be a lot easier. As Meyer started opening new restaurants, it became a tradition. The day he signed his new lease, he'd bring the new landlord to Sparks. For good luck. He makes every partner in the deal choose their own bottle of wine. And he's continued doing it even after Seta's death. I asked Meyer, does he mostly like Sparks because it's familiar? He has all these sentimental stories, but if he didn't have the stories, is it actually good? What makes a good restaurant? The answer I got made me realize that the question itself doesn't make sense in the Danny Meyer philosophy of hospitality. You should be sentimental about your favorite restaurant. The attachment, what he calls the invisible hug that you feel at a place that you know and knows you. That's the point. I don't come here just because of my stories. I come here because I love eating here. Mm -hmm. I, I've had good stories in a lot of places that I don't go back to. <laughs> Implicit in all of my stories is a story that I remember from um, Craig Claiborne. He was the first restaurant critic for the New York Times. And wherever he would travel, people would ask him, what's your favorite restaurant now? And his answer was great. He said, my favorite restaurant is the same one that should be your favorite restaurant. The one that loves you the most. So can you be successful just by making people feel loved? I feel like the typical New York restaurant lover Love it. <laughs> Out of every 10 restaurant experiences, this is just my anecdotal theory, mm -hmm. I think six of them are restaurants you've never been to, and it's all about discovering something new. And four of them are restaurants you're returning to yeah. that you like. If you can make that rotation of the four that someone goes back to, you're probably an institution. Because you're not just a place that they chose, you're probably a place that... A lot of people chose. For Meyer, there's a lesson in that for this particular moment. If you're an institution, there's even more pressure coming out of the pandemic. There's been a lot of turnover in restaurants. The staff may all be different. And when people return to you expecting something familiar, that feeling might be a little off. That makes how a restaurant reopens even more important and more complicated. And this is going to sound crazy, but in a very bizarre way, it's almost been less challenging to open a brand new restaurant like Chisiyama from scratch than to reopen one of our beloved restaurants because nobody is a regular at Chisiyama because it just opened. They don't have a favorite table yet. The steak's getting cold, the hash browns are eaten, 
And as we get ready to go and take a photo under a big framed portrait of Pat Seta presiding over his palace, Meyer drops one last memory. I'll give you a Pat Seta quote that just came to me. Sure. He, he wrote this, he scribbled this down one day on a piece of paper yeah. and made me stuff it in my wallet. <laughs> okay. People may think they want fancy, but what they really want is to feel important. And with that, we go back out onto the streets of New York as it is today. No bloody hands from the beefsteak, but full from a classic lunch. And now, from the steakhouses of New York City to the noodles of northeastern China. Here's my colleague, Fuchsia Dunlop, who recently wrote a piece about the legendary noodles of Shanxi. The reason for writing the piece really was that um, although, of course, everyone knows the Chinese like noodles and have a noodle culture, and although in recent years we have seen in Western cities um, restaurants opening up serving things like Lanzhou hand-pulled noodles and Xi'an Biangbiang noodles, also hand-pulled sort of thick ribbons of noodles, we still only see this tiny, tiny, tiny part of this extraordinary pasta culture that China has to offer. And there's one place where if you want to write about Chinese pasta, you really need to go, and that's Shanxi province in the north of the country. So this is a province um, which is famous within China for its mianshi, its flower foods, and just has this very diverse culture of handmade pastas. The truth is, we started this story about a month ago. We even announced back then at the end of the show that we'd be talking about it next week. But right after that announcement, there was terrible flooding in Shanxi. Nearly 2 million people have been displaced and 15 died. We thought it would be really the wrong time to do a story about noodles. But then Jiwei, our listener, she reached out to me on Instagram. She's a fan of the show, and she was excited that we'd be talking about the noodle culture of her hometown. She told me her family had been suffering from the floods. Not that many people had died, but homes were ruined, and so were a lot of cultural heritage sites. She was heartbroken to be watching that from far away in Edinburgh. That's where she studied and where she now works. So I called her to learn about Shanxi and about the noodle culture and to see how her family is doing. Jiwei, thank you and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I know that there has been really awful flooding in Shangji. How's your family doing? How are things there? My uncle's house was affected. But fortunately, mm. he was safe, you know, safe and sound as the government took action in time and people got evacuated in a timely manner. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that. We were messaging a little about Shangxi. It sounds like a really beautiful place. Yeah. Can you tell me what it was like to grow up there? Yeah, sure. It's called Ancient Chinese Culture Museum. You can find all distinct architecture, houses, murals, and sculptures. You know, it has the largest number of historic building and ancient culture among all Chinese provinces from Qing Ming Dynasty. What's your favorite sort of like ancient monument or historic thing in Shanxi? I think it would be one of the famous courtyards of Shanxi merchant from Qing Dynasty. I feel like it carries the sense of history and culture. You know, when you walk around in that courtyard, you just feel like... Yeah, you are living in ancient China. Mm. You know, just to feel quite different than 
like the world nowadays. Jiwei lives and works in Edinburgh now, but she grew up in a really unique part of Shanxi called Yaodong, where all the homes are essentially caves carved into the hillside. They're naturally insulated by the earth, so they're cool in the summer and warm in the winter. Yeah, when I talk to like many of my friends, they they just couldn't believe it. They they thought that's a place where our ancestors lived in. <laughs> really? Yeah. So you grew up in what was like a cave, and when you go inside, it's like a yeah home. Like- yeah, we've got everything. We we got like furniture, like tables, chairs. Yeah, we got everything that we have. Wow. Yeah, in the. I mean, in a normal, normal room, except the earth, you know, it's like uh, a dome. Yeah, it just does feel quite different. I really miss my childhood because it's not like a fast-paced city. Uh, you don't need to yeah. rush. You are so close to nature. Yeah, it feels so peaceful. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Mm. So, were noodles a part, a staple for you growing up? Like, wh- I mean, when you think of the food of Shangji, is that what you think of? Yeah, we love noodles. Like as Shanxiers, <laughs> I was taught how to make noodles and dumplings when I was little. And like、mm. before I came to UK, my parents、uh, helped me recap it because, like, they just、uh, thought if I、uh, didn't know how to make noodles myself, I would be starving. <laughs> I wouldn't have <laughs>、right. anything to eat. Living in Edinburgh, the one noodle Jiwei's been able to find is ramen. She can't find any comparable to the noodles back home. She can only cook those herself. If you reflect on the meaning of the food from Shanxi or, or the food from back home, how do you think about it? People usually say that when we're away from home, nothing can be better or more heartwarming、mm. than eating noodles at home. Yeah, so that's something that has been passed down to us. Yeah, it, it runs through our blood. <laughs> Just before the pandemic, my colleague Fuchsia Dunlop went to Shanxi to report on this noodle culture. Fuchsia is a renowned cook and food writer who specializes in Chinese cuisine. She writes regularly for the FT. One of my favorites she actually did was a state-led culinary tour of North Korea. But she's also written five books, many of which have won awards, and they all bring recipes from China to Western audiences. I really do respect the knowledge and the culture of chefs, and I think that、um, you know they should be seen as being people who are custodians of Chinese culture and heritage. Fuchsia was always interested in food, but she first got interested in Chinese cuisine after graduating from university. She got a scholarship to do cultural research in Chengdu, the capital of Sichuan, but she was distracted by the food. Sichuan food wasn't popular yet in Britain or in the West the way it is now. For a young person going there in the 1990s, who'd only really had、um, the kind of British Chinese food until that time, it was a complete revelation because Chinese food, of course, as it's eaten in China, is so incredibly diverse, and it's also so much fresher and healthier than you'd expect from a lot, of, you know, the sort of Chinese takeaway stereotype. So Fuchsia started buying produce from the markets and cooking at home. And then ended up enrolling as the first foreign student at the Sichuan Institute of Higher Cuisine. And what was that like to be the first foreign student there? 
most of my classmates just had not interacted with foreigners before. So some of the boys were a bit shy and but it was just glorious yes. learning to cook these delicious dishes, many of which have now become very fam- you know, famous and popular in the West, like mapu dofu, gongba chicken, all, all these wonderful dishes. Yeah. I guess in retrospect, it sounds like something completely crazy to have done and very difficult, but I had a great time. When Fuchsia went back to London, she wanted to bring some of what she'd learned to non-Chinese cooks in Britain. So she wrote books, she started working with restaurants, and she really has, in the years since, been fundamental to making Chinese cooking in the West more complex and more reminiscent of what it's actually like in China. I'm curious about over this time period, since you started writing about this, like how under the understanding of Chinese food has changed in the West or in the UK I think dramatically. Mm. When I first went to China, so that's in the early 1990s, um, most Chinese restaurants, even in a very cosmopolitan city like London, were based in the Cantonese tradition. Mm -hmm. And what's happened in the more than 20 years since then is that there's a whole new generation of immigrants, students, business people, visitors from all over China And so not only have they brought their personal sort of traditions with them, but also they've brought trends from mainland China. The staple food in China is rice, but there's a north-south divide here. In the south, rice is the main and noodles are the snack on the side. In the north, people eat noodles and dumplings as the main with rice on the side. Everyone in China told Fuchsia, if you want to learn more about noodle culture in China, you have to go to Shenxi. Your piece was so tactile. And when you went to this restaurant that you described as theater, you said everything you could think of doing with dough, Shangxi cooks had tried. Snipping, shaving, grating, rolling, smearing, slicing, thumbing, extruding, pinching, dripping, tearing, pulling, rubbing. And I just like felt like I was there. Can you tell me about it a little bit? So so one of the key differences, right, between Italian and, well, specifically Shanxi pasta cultures is that, you know, the Italians for dried pasta, they use durum wheat. So you can dry pasta, so you can store it and you can transport it. Mm. Um, whereas the pastas of Shanxi are all, well, almost all freshly made. So it's a kind of artisan tradition of handmade pastas. And that, I think, is one of the reasons why we see so little of it yeah. abroad, because we don't have armies of Shanxi pasta makers <laughs> to make all these, all these things. These are the sorts of noodles Fuchsia saw being made. In one restaurant that a friend of a friend brought her to... This oat restaurant. It was called Oat Pasta Village, and Fuchsia ended up fixated on this one chef who was rolling these perfectly even noodles into a steamer. She put three little egg-shaped pieces of dough, and then she rolled her hands backwards and forwards, and then these little tails of pasta started coming out of the outside of her hands. Other Shanxi pastas are made with special instruments. They have a special grater in a wooden frame that sits on the wok and then they grate the pasta so you get these sort of wriggly shapes going directly into boiling water. And then they have these hyper-local pasta shapes too. Like in Taiyuan, the capital, Tijera, which is their most famous, if you like, pasta food. They use something like a sharpened chopstick. To sort of swipe off little strips of dough directly into a pot full of water. So they fly through the air and um, (laughs) they jump into the wok full of boiling water. 
One of the most popular types of pasta you can try in Beijing at a chain called Xibei. Cao Lao Lao or Youmian Wu. It's truly extraordinary watching it being made. What they do is they rub little tongues of of pasta onto a board and then sort of flip them around into tubes and then stand at the tube up. Upright on a steamer, so the whole steamer ends up filled with hollow tubes of oat pasta, like a sort of honeycomb. So they bring the steamer to the table with sauce that you pour over it, and then the tubes soak it up. The thing that's amazing is how casually they do it. China is a very food-centric culture.、Mm-hmm. People have been fascinated by the creative possibilities of food for at least two thousand years. They've written about it, they've dreamed、mm-hmm. about it, and they have approached it with a very sharp technical curiosity. This creative, inventive approach to food—that's something that's very much part of the Chinese tradition—is of thinking of all the possibilities of an ingredient. Like, what can you do with it? How can you transform it? How can you make the Most of its qualities, and how can you subdue its deficiencies,、mm-hmm. and this sort of thought about your ingredient, and so that applies to anything. So, for example, you know, if you go to a good Peking duck restaurant, you don't just have roast duck; you have dishes made with every part of the duck, from its webs to its intestines、cool. to, I mean, just everything. And a Chinese chef will think, well, here's the ingredient. You know, what can I do with all these different parts? What's the texture like? What's the flavor like? What do I need to do to、right. make it delicious? The pasta arts are no different. So there is this extraordinary, joyful, brilliant creativity of having a material and just exploring all the possibilities. That's the show this week. You have been listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Please keep in touch. Say hi. Tell me what you're thinking and who you'd like to hear on the show. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast@ft.com. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. I'm putting some photos of the house Jiwe grew up in on my Instagram, the one built into the rock, and also a few photos of Danny Meyer with Pat Seta and Sparks. And feel free to say hi. It turns out if you message me, you may end up on the show. Next week, we're asking the question: What does it mean to try and defy death? One of the world's top rock climbers, Leo Hulding, brings us on a very extreme family holiday with his young kids. And science writer Anjana Ahuja tells us about the billions of dollars being invested into immortality. She also introduces us to the scientists working to keep us alive until we're 150, even 200 years old. In the show notes, as always, are links to everything mentioned on the show. There's also a special discount there on an FT Weekend subscription. It's really good, and it's also at ft.com/weekendpodcast. Please leave us a review and share the show on your Twitter or your Instagram story or with a few friends. That really is the best way you can help support the show. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Katya Kumkova and George Drake Jr. are our senior producers. Lulu Smith and Josh Gabbert Doyen are our assistant producers, and Breen Turner is our sound engineer with original music by Metaphor Music. Cheryl Brumley and Manuela Saragosa are our executive producers, and we have editorial direction from Renee Kaplan. We'll find each other again next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.